How's everybody doing? Everybody good? All right. Um, we're going to go and pick up right where we left off. Um, if you've been journeying with us, uh, have been present for our sermon series, or been tracking online, you know that we have been in the book of Romans seeking to apply the gospel to our lives, studying this amazing book in the Bible. And uh, where we left off, we finished last week, chapter 5, and we're picking up today Romans chapter 6, verse 1 to 14. But today, even though we're going to read all 14 verses, we're actually going to spend two weeks in this passage. And so we're going to focus on the first seven verses today. I say all that because I want to really encourage you for the next couple of days, next two weeks even, to really park your soul in these verses because God says some of the most amazing, tremendous, life-changing things that you could ever hear God say to us in these verses. And I am doing the most terrible job of hyping this up because even if I try with all the energy in the world, I could not match the incredible life-transforming words that we're about to hear. And so Romans chapter 6, verse 1 to 14, let's listen to what God says to us. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can gather under the authority of your name, your lordship, as we study your word with expectant hearts. We want to meet you. We need to hear from you. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would glorify Jesus, reveal him to each and every one of our hearts. Help us to see Jesus more clearly. And we thank you, Father, that we can encounter you in love and mercy. We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
and amen. Verse 1, it asks a question that really feels like risky. Like, are we really asking this question? Um, it almost feels like an unsafe terrain to go to. Have you ever uh, been asked something by someone, and you're like, I feel like I'm being set up. Like, you, you're like, no matter what I say, I feel like you're tricking me. You know, like, when someone asks a question, you're like, I don't think you really want the honest answer, but it feels unsafe. Does anybody relate to that? Uh, it, it's a, it feels risky. Like, what are we actually exploring here? Because Paul begins this chapter saying, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? It's like, wait a second. It, are you really asking this question? Should we continue in sin? Uh, like, why are we going down this line of reasoning and arguing, argumentation? Like, why? And, you know, I'll be honest. Many times over the years, as I read this verse, I would often imagine that this is the kind of question that someone asks who is looking for reasons to sin, who is looking to justify or like, you know, like they already have their mind made up. doesn't matter what God tells them, like, I'm just going to continue to sin. And so now they're kind of playing devil's advocate. They're trying to see if they can create an argument in defense of, but actually I realized that that was a wrong reading of this question as we've been journeying in Romans, because by now, we should be very clear that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is this unmerited, undeserved, free gift. That God saves us by no help of our own. God did not put any burden on us to do something in order for us to be saved, that you and I, when we experience salvation, salvation is something that is not achieved. It's something that we receive. It, like that, Romans has been building up this case, and it's kind of like poked at and kind of deconstructed all these ideas of, but wait, don't we have to earn our place at God's table? Don't we have to be good and righteous in order for God to bless us and love us? And at this point, Romans, we've seen God make the case over and over and over again that every single person, the moral, uh, religious, abiding person by, by good standards and, and the one who does not abide by it at all are on equal footing before Jesus because both are received into God's covenant community, the church, by grace. It's unearned. It's undeserved. And so this is a big contrast to religion itself. Religion largely basically sets us up for this performance-based relationship um, where, where religion will tell you, you have to do X in order for God to owe you Y. And so you do certain deeds and God owes you blessings and he owes you heaven but it sets you up for this lifetime transactional relationship with God where essentially it tries to get God to owe us something. God is our debtor. That's what religion tells you. But the gospel tells you the complete opposite. It says you can't deserve this and you can't achieve this. You can't earn this. It's an absolute free gift that you, all you have to do is come to receive it. So if you're trekking with that, then this question actually really makes sense. 
Because what it's exploring is the inevitable conclusion or the next logical sequence of that. In other words, it's saying, if salvation is a gift I don't earn, that I can't deserve, that I don't work for, then is obeying actually necessary? If my obedience doesn't contribute anything to my salvation, then should I even obey? And some of us right now, if you're honest, you're kind of getting excited by that argument. It's like, wait a second, is this the Sunday that I came to church and I'm told I can leave here and I don't have to obey? Oh my gosh, this is a great Sunday. I was like, I've been itching for somebody to justify my desire to lie and cheat and do all these other crazy things. This might be the Sunday if I'm hearing this. Um, hold, your, hold, hold your horses. Um, this question that's being raised actually makes complete sense if you understand the implications of the gospel. If you've taken the time to explore, wait, if this is really by grace and I don't deserve this, I can't earn this, then this has a lot of implications. I've had these really tremendous conversations with my 14-year-old as of late. And we had one a few days ago. She stopped me. She was like, so, Dad, it's, it's really free? Salvation is really free? Like, you don't have to do anything? And, like, she's really processing this. She's like, is this really what I've been told all these years? Like, is this what it is? And I shared with her the story of a friend of mine uh, who pastored in Chicago, and he met this woman who, up until that point, had never even heard the name Jesus. She came from, I forget the country of origin she came from, but where she was at home before she came to the States, she had never heard the name Jesus, Christianity, nothing. And as she was hearing the gospel for the first time, she choked up, she got emotional, and she said, this sounds too good to be true. This is unbelievable. And like when the gospel really begins to hit our hearts, we, we probably should have that kind of a moment where like, this is amazing. This is incredible what we're being invited into. And so this question is exploring like the depths, the, compl- the layers, the implications. And it kind of reminds me of a story I read. It goes like this. A man walks into a bank in New York City and asks for the loan officer. The man says he's going to Europe on business for two weeks and needs to borrow $5,000. The loan officer says the bank will need some kind of security for such a loan, so the man hands over the keys and documents to a new Bentley Continental parked on the street in front of the bank. Everything checks out, and the bank agrees to accept the car as collateral for the loan. The employee drives the Bentley into the bank's underground garage and parks it there. Two weeks later, the man returns and pays the $5,000 plus interest, which at that time, I wish it was this low, it was $15.41. That was the interest on $5,000 for two weeks. The loan officer says, we're very happy to have had your business, and this transaction's worked out very nicely, but we're a little puzzled. While you were away, we checked you out and found out that you're a rich man. You have a good-sized house in upstate New York, a sizable equity portfolio, and no debt at all. So we're curious as to why you would bother to borrow $5,000 at all. And the man replied, 
Where else in New York City can I park my car for two weeks for $15.41? Not all heroes have capes. This guy, though it's fictional, is my hero. You know, like, he worked the system. He, like, he, he took some time to understand the system, and he gained it. And in some ways, Paul, when he asked this question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He's like, as we're understanding the gospel, this is a legit question. Like, if obedience doesn't add anything or take away, should we even obey? You know, one of my seminary professors, Dr. Jong, he, he, he talked about this passage, and he said this. If you've never entertained a form of this question, it may be because you don't truly understand the gospel. If you truly understand the gospel, this form of questioning should come up. It's like, if I don't deserve this, if I don't earn this, if I can't achieve this, then where does my effort come in? Can I tell you, it's an absolutely important thing to bring your honest questions to God, to wrestle with your questions with God. You know, one of my personal heroes in this regard is a member of our church, I won't mention her name because she might not like it. I didn't ask for her uh, permission. Um, but there's a member of our church that, to me, presented this questioning posture in one of the most beautiful ways I've ever seen. She really came full-hearted, wondering, asking, uh, curious. You know, God's not threatened by your questions. He's not scared. Like, oh, you stumped me. I haven't thought about that. I haven't heard about that. Like, he, he, he wants you to not lay down your mind in order to follow him. He wants to meet you in the wrestling of your questions, and it's safe to ask these questions. And Paul's asking an incredibly important question. If we don't earn or deserve our salvation through our obedience, then should we just continue in sin? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Before we seek to find answers to that question in this verse, I wonder in your mind what kind of sin is coming to mind for you? Like, if we're just hanging out here for a bit, it's like, wait a second. If I could continue in sin, if I don't have to stop sinning and grace will abound, what sin would I continue to do? Some of you are feeling very uncomfortable. You're just like, I don't want to think about that, Chris. I don't feel safe. I, I didn't come here to think about that. But it, why I ask that question is because let's just say you're still of the posture and says, no, we got to resist sin. we got to fight it. Sin is wrong. I would venture to say that for many of us, we probably have two categories of sin. We have the egregious, big non-negotiable, the one that you would be willing to lose friendships over because you're so disgusted by, you think it's the worst thing a human being could do, and you think anybody who would say that was okay is wrong. And then we have our respectable sins, the ones that, oh, it's okay, doesn't hurt anybody, or, you know, under the right circumstances, I can understand why. You know, the respectable sins are greed, pride, bitterness, gossip. You know, it, that's, that's something that I love how you viscerally respond. No, what are you saying, Pastor? Yes, it, it's for some of us, we have sins that we think they're not that big of a deal. And so you might even be wondering, like, why are we even spending time questioning this or following the question of 
Should we continue in sin? It's not that big of a deal if we did X, Y, and Z. But let me just say that whether you're considering big egregious sins or respectable sins, do you know the answer to the question that we're asking? It's stated right after it's posed. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The answer is a resounding by no means. The exclamation is there because in the original language, it's an intense response. It poses the question, a legitimate question. The response is so powerful. Some Bible translations have, God forbid, by no means should we think that the gospel would actually empower us to live sinfully. Why that's important for us to park there and settle in our hearts is because if you were not careful, we could pervert the grace of God and misuse it and misapply it and think that though God is gracious and he's loving and he's inviting and you don't have to earn or deserve this, we can then allow ourselves to believe the lie that God would ever become comfortable and okay with something like sin that dishonors him and disfigures us. God's response is by no means, by no means, absolutely not, so unequivocally clear, by no means, absolutely not. And so I, I, I pose this question for us to reflect and process. What's the temperature of your heart with respect to sin? Is the temperature of your heart by no means, absolutely not, God forbid? Or is the temperature of your heart under certain circumstances? I could see a reason, I could, that's justified. If we're understanding the implications of the gospel, then our answer should be, by no means, absolutely not. How could we ever think that we could become comfortable with the very thing that Jesus died to set us free from. You and I may struggle with sin. You and I may have moments where sin absolutely trips you up and knocks you down and it feels like it won the match for that day and you're out for the count. Struggles are real and we all have them. But what this is telling us is that fundamentally, you and I, as followers of Jesus, as the good news of the gospel has transformed us, our attitude, our reality, our relationship with sin should be the equivalent of a body that's rejecting an organ, like through transplant surgery. Someone's, the doctors are trying to put the organ in, the body's saying, no, I reject it. This is foreign. For us as followers of Jesus, sin should be equivalent to something that's foreign to us, that we push it out, that it's not, it can't become like second nature again. It can't become settled in us. We cannot allow ourselves to be comfortable with it. The good news of Jesus wants to transform every single one of us into a by no means type of follower of Jesus. That when sin emerges, when sin tries to deceive us and trip us up, that our reaction, our response, our posture, our decision is firm. 
that we say, by no means will I let myself become comfortable and bound up in this ever again. And why should we say that? Why should that be our posture? What is the reason why we're being told that you and I should never become comfortable with sin, that we should have a posture that actively rejects it and pushes it out of our lives and out of our life as a community? The answer is absolutely mesmerizing, and it's counterintuitive. It's not what you and I might at first expect because what we read in this passage is the reason why God is saying you should absolutely by no means be comfortable with sin is because of this. Verse 2, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? What is this saying? It's saying, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse 6, hear this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. The answer to why you and I should not sin, why you and I should not become comfortable with sin is a profound answer. The answer is because we've died to it. We died to sin. When Jesus died, it's telling us that we died with him, that God united us with Christ in his death. And as a result of that, we are now dead to sin. And some of you are looking at me slightly puzzled, like, what does that mean? What does that mean? When you say I died to sin, does it mean that I should be sinning less? Because if you're honest, you're like, Pastor Chris, I kind of sin a lot. You know, like, it, I'm with you. You're like, wait, if it's saying I died to sin, yet I still have the propensity to sin, I still can sin, like, with the best of them. Some of you are like, I haven't sinned in a while. Put you in the right circumstance, buddy, and you will see that it is quite easy for stuff to pop off and come out of us that we think that maybe is no longer there. We all have the capacity, the ability to sin in a, in a moment. So what does it mean that it says that we died to sin? Notice it's telling us, it's not saying that we ought to die to sin. It's saying you have died to sin. Did you know that you, as a follower of Jesus, one of the realities that Jesus has accomplished for us is that he has declared us dead to sin, that you have died to it. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't sin and that you don't have the capacity to sin quite a lot, but what it actually means is this, and this is incredibly Good, liberating news. 
What it means that we've died to sin, it means that you and I have died to its mastery over us. It is no longer Lord over us. It's no longer king over us. We are no longer its servant. It says that we've been freed. We're no longer a slave to sin. What Jesus has accomplished is that he has defeated the mastery of sin over our lives. And so now, can you and I still sin? Absolutely. Do you and I still sin? Yes. But you know what's changed now because of what Jesus has done? When you and I sin as followers of Jesus, we are no longer slaves to that sin like we used to be. Because he has set us free. I could tell for some of us this still isn't dropping because what I just told you is better news than someone telling you you're a billionaire. All your debts are paid. That house you wanted, you got it. What you have just heard from the scriptures is better news than that because guess what money can't do for you? It can't free you from sin. Guess what success can't do for you? It cannot free you from sin. This was a slave driver that humanity could not free itself from, no matter how hard we tried. And yet Jesus has accomplished this for us. Thanks be to God. It's counterintuitive. Because what it's telling us now, when the scriptures tell us to resist sin to not live into its passions. It's not telling you to resist an enemy that has any edge over you. It's actually telling you to resist an enemy that's been declawed and defanged. It has no power over us. This is unbelievably liberating news. My, my eight-year-old, uh, he's been going to karate pretty faithfully. Um, we do it just to keep him active because um, he fights us every single time going there. Pretty ironic, right? He fights us to go learn how to fight. Um, and, but once he's there, he loves it. He has fun. But it's kind of getting to his head a little bit because he'll come out of these sessions. He's like, hey, Dad, I could break your wrist, you know? <laughs> okay. Kind of misusing your knowledge there. Um, it's not why we're sending you there. Um, I was like, well, you know, if you broke my wrist, you'd never see the light of day, you know. Um, So that's a fun thing to entertain. But in his mind, he actually thinks he could beat me in a fight. Like, it's legit. He's convinced. I try to tell him, like, hey, if we fought, you you wouldn't win. You know that, right? Like, you're my son, but I'm not going to let you win. You know, like, we're going to fight. We're going to fight for real. I'm going to help you. T- you're going to taste defeat. You know, I'm going to let you experience reality. This is, not, this is not a home that gives trophies, you know, for 10th place. No, you're, you're going to experience it. I used to joke around with them. and be like, hey, you know what second place is? They're like, what, Dad? It's the first loser. No, I'm joking. And so I kid, I kid. I'm not that competitive. And so in many ways, sin is like a child that thinks it could beat you up, that wants you to think it has power over you, that wants you to believe it could actually defeat you. 
But Jesus is saying, no. I defeated that enemy. I crushed its power, its authority over you. Its hold has been absolutely relinquished. And so now when you and I resist sin, you and I are resisting a defeated former slave master that has no right, no bearing on us, no legal authority, no claim over us. That's our new relationship with sin. And so therefore, that's why it's like like coming down so hard. By no means, because it's the idea of if you've been freed from this slave master, why would you ever want to serve it again? Why would you ever want to put yourself under the authority of your former master who now has been absolutely decimated in its authority over you? That's what the good news of Jesus has done for us. But I think for some of us, I would argue all of us, our struggle to believe this, to walk in this, is that in our lived experience, we don't always feel like sin has no mastery over us. We feel bound. We feel tied up. We feel burdened. We feel like, do I actually have a choice? Because it feels like I just can't stop. Like it's no longer like me driving these decisions. It's like sin is calling the shots in my life. And so we struggle to believe, how could I be freed from sin when in my lived experience, it feels the complete opposite? I think what we're experiencing is something similar to Brooks from Shawshank Redemption. Has anybody ever seen that movie, Shawshank Redemption? Raise your hand. If you haven't, I'm going to ruin the plot for you. And so... Um, You say, no, don't ruin it. It's 2023. You had a lot of time to watch it. And so can't hold me responsible for your slack, you know, entertainment. Um, There's a character in the movie. His name is Brooks. And he's a very elderly man. And he has been in this institution called Shawshank, where all these inmates have been imprisoned for really egregious, serious crimes. These are murderers. These are... These are people who know they deserve to be behind bars because they have committed some really awful acts. Brooks was no exception. He killed people. And so he's in this jail. But over time, he becomes like the custodian of books that eventually becomes this library. And he has this little pet crow. And he's just like this really lovable older guy, even though you know, like, he's lovable, but he could kill me. You know, like, it's... It's this weird tension. After being in this institution for decades, he was sentenced to life. All of a sudden, the parole board sets him free. He's he's released. And now he enters back into society. And, And he's very, like, many years have passed that he's been behind these walls. And now he's free. And now you see glimpses of him working at the supermarket. And he's struggling to keep up with the pace of society. Everything's fast. And... And the, the, his boss is telling him to hurry up and pack the groceries, and, and he's kind of struggling with it. And, and, and then there's these moments where he says he, he, he realizes that he actually cannot go to the bathroom unless he's given permission. Like he physically cannot actually 
use the bathroom unless he's given permission because for decades he could not do anything unless he was given permission. And then the sad moment arrives where Brooks hangs himself. And he writes this suicide letter. And in the letter, he basically just could not cope with freedom because he had been so institutionalized. In fact, in the letter he says, sometimes I fantasize about killing my manager so they'll send me back. Because he, he, he knew life as a slave, as a prisoner, more than he knew actual freedom. And I think for some of us, the struggle we have in believing what the gospel is telling us is that we've been spiritually institutionalized. We, we, we've been conditioned by living under sin slavery for so long that it's hard for us to believe what freedom could actually be like. And so we're used to life under the old master. And so we struggle to learn how to live life under our new master, which is Jesus, and the freedom that he's made possible. But look at what the text tells us. It not only told us that we died to sin, that it's done. That there's nothing you and I could do to die to sin. We've died to sin. God has done this for us in Christ. But then it actually tells us how we died to sin. It tells us that the way our death to sin was accomplished was that God united us with Christ in his death burial, and resurrection. Essentially, God performed this marriage ceremony. He united us with Christ, and we now enjoy union with Christ. And out of that union, one of the glorious benefits of our union with Christ is that we are now dead to sin. Dead to sin. I, I talk to single people all the time, and They'll ask me questions because they know I've been married for a bit and, and it, from all intents and purposes, and it's authentic and sincere. I actually enjoy my wife. I, like, I love marriage. I love my kids. And so they were like, we've heard of the legend of someone who was happily married. Can you tell us more? And so, um, and so I ask, they, get, they ask me all these questions, and, and then I remember what it was like to be single, and I'm like, oh, man, it's just such a journey that folks go through. Um, but often I feel like my responsibility in those moments is to uphold marriage as one of the most beautiful things that God has created, but also to unromanticize it and give some reality because Hollywood and movies have made it this thing that's absolutely a fantasy. Um, and so one of the things that I'll often tell is like, hey, you not only get companionship, you not only get someone to do life with, you also receive someone that will introduce suffering into your life. I'm like, wait a second, that doesn't that sound romantic. That, I don't want to date suffering, you know? Like, when you are in union with someone, there's no negotiating of saying, you know what, I'm going to marry you only under the conditions that you bring only your good parts, like, your, like the good stuff about you. I don't want this, I don't want that, 
keep that out of here. No, the whole package comes. I'll give you an example. I went to CUNY, City University of New York. Yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> as a result of the low tuition, um, I graduated debt-free. Unbelievable. So grateful for it. My wife went to St. John's University, a, a private school. And so I'm falling in love with her. We're dating. And now we're getting ready to get married. And we have this serious debt conversation. And I realize, oh, wow, this is going to become mine. I will no longer be able to say I didn't repay school loans. Like, these are my school loans now. And so from there, for, uh, from, there, from there on out, I would always joke, and she gets a little irritated. I was like, I'm so proud of our master's degree, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> we did good in that paper, right? And it was like, I did the work. Sure, tell yourself whatever you got to tell yourself, you know? Our degree, yes. We're so accomplished. What was hers became mine. What's mine became hers. What's Christ became ours through our union with him. And he died to sin. And that death to sin became ours too. You realize what this is saying? That you came in here, some of us, not realizing that you have been obeying a master that had no claim to you any longer. That you've been obeying the dictates and the edicts of an authority in your life that has been debunked and has no authority or power over you. Sin and all its authority has been diminished and absolutely crushed. This is the good news that Jesus declares to us that he's made possible for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. Here's something that I want to close with that I think is an important implication, um, something that I think we need to really take a serious look at if we believe what God is saying about our new reality, our freedom from sin. One of the reasons why Christian community is absolutely essential, vital, it's non-negotiable. The idea of someone following Jesus in isolation, independent from community, is an erroneously unbiblical idea. You, you cannot find it in the scriptures. We were intended to follow Jesus in community. One of the reasons why that's so vital and important is because in isolation, do you know what we will default to? We will default to the old mindset of slavery, of who we were before we declared Jesus Lord over our lives. Leave any one of us to ourself for long enough, and we will believe the old lies, and we will live out the old reality. None of us, including myself, especially myself, none of us are strong enough, will-powered enough, driven enough, like deeply rooted in Scripture enough. None of us know Jesus enough to ever think that we could continue to walk 
with Jesus in isolation. We need community for this fundamental reason. We need people around us that remind us of who we truly are now that we are under the authority of Jesus. We need community to remind us you and I are no longer under the slavery of sin. And here's one of my concerns when as churches, as we tend to shy away from sin and and not name it and not be honest about it and act as if it doesn't exist, we strip away one of the key dynamics of Christian community. One of the benefits, one of the essential things that should happen in church life together as we follow Jesus is that you and I help each other walk out our freedom from sin. You can't be free from something that we keep denying its existence and we keep erasing the boundary lines and we keep saying, no, it used to be sin, but now we're modern, we're very elite, we figured it out, the scriptures were outdated. We can't be free from something that we keep coddling and justifying. We have to name sin, we have to be clear on what the scripture says, and in community, you and I get to encourage each other, don't live under the old slave master. Don't get comfortable with it. I know it's a struggle. I know we can revert back. I know we can forget that we're free. I know we can, old habits sometimes take time to get uprooted. But in community, we keep holding each other in the glorious light of this truth. We will not shirk back from it. We stand in the glorious truth that Jesus has set us free from sin, that the old slave master has been crucified. Its power over us is done. And even as we struggle, we are no longer struggling against an authority that has any power over us. Because Jesus has given us the victory. So today, as we close and we hope all of you plan to stick around and to have a meal and to get to know folks and begin to build community, refresh community. And also today as you visit tables and get to know small group leaders, I want to encourage you. None of us are so busy that we could afford to sacrifice being a part of essential community. You have to ask yourself, am I too busy to live free? Am I so busy that I could afford to set my life up so that the old master can bring its hands around my neck and enslave me again? None of us can afford to not be in community. However accommodating you're going to have to be and change your schedule and all the things and adjust your life, Being in community is worth it for the simple fact that outside of community, the prospects are very dim. Outside of community, your sure fate and mine is one of living under the old slave master. But in community, around Jesus, you and I could remind each other, encourage each other, call each other back when we drift, when we stray to live out the reality that Jesus has made possible. So I know, I know many of you, you're you're busy, your lives are full, and the idea of adding community is, I don't know if I could do it. 
you can't afford not to. If you're intending to live as the free person that Jesus has made possible. With that, I want to invite us to stand as the worship team comes forward. And over these next few moments, the prayer team is going to be in the back to my right and to your left. And at any given time over the next few moments, if you would like prayer for anything you're dealing with, anything you might have come in carrying or perhaps anything the sermon might have stirred for you or even the words that were shared earlier, in these next few moments, all we invite you to do is you can slip out of your seat over these next few moments, go and receive prayer. We would love to pray with you and stand with you and minister. And so with that, could I invite us just to bow our heads just for a moment as we prepare to turn our hearts to God in prayer and confession and song. Lord Jesus, you are here in our midst. The one who united us with your death, burial, resurrection. We're in union with you. And that union has resulted in our freedom from sin. God, it's, it's, it's a struggle to believe because often sin feels like it still has its hold on us. Yet what we're hearing from your word is that you have crushed its authority. It no longer has claim over us. That we're actually struggling with a defeated foe. So Jesus, I pray for us as we turn to you pray that we would develop a new perspective from your word that says I have died to sin the body of sin has been crucified sin has no longer reign over me its mastery over me is done because of Jesus Lord help us to believe this to receive this and to build our lives on this reality Let's turn to God at this time. Let's worship. Let's seek him together. Again, the prayer team is available. You can slip out of your seat and go receive.